0: in your copy of God's Word to uh, Hebrews chapter 6 uh, as we uh, continue in uh, this series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, this morning we will look just at verses 13 to 20, that, that last section of, um, of the chapter. If you're able, would you please stand as we give our attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that as we come to this Uh, The very word of God, that you would open ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe and embrace, and lives to be changed for the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, You always hesitate, I guess, to use illustrations. It might be too soon for some. Uh, Some of you know this better than others. Some of you know this um, more recently than others. Uh, But the reality is we have, um, I don't know, a a love-hate kind of relationship with surgeons. Right? I mean, the reality is in, in, in isolation... In you know, the absence of any issue, we get it. Surgeons are good. They're, they're, they're there for a reason. But we have this love-hate relationship with surgeons. If you think about it, they literally, I mean, like, if someone took a knife out and cut you out there between, you know, the building and your car, you would call the cops because that would be an assault. But here you go and you lay on the table and they literally take this blade and they literally cut you open. Like layers of skin and flesh. They're cutting nerves through muscle. They cut into organs that quite honestly, I'd rather nobody ever see. Like I'm perfectly happy if nobody ever gets a good look at my heart or my liver. Like I'm, I'm perfectly happy going, and yet we go in and voluntarily give ourselves to be sliced open. It hurts. Okay, they, local, general, epidural, whatever, right? It hurts. I mean, you've got to recover from this. Your body literally was sliced open. It is not pleasant. I mean, the very concept, the very idea of it is a... Uh, well, it kind of hurts, kind of makes your body in certain places, especially if you have a scar and, and perhaps even more so if it's fresh, you kind of go, I'm kind of hurting right here in this spot or this spot or whatever. It's not it's not. It's not delightful, I guess. It's, it's not a, a intended to be a delightful experience, but they, they literally cut through skin and muscle and, and into these organs. They, they, they go through whatever layer stands between them and the problem, and that's the word that matters. There's something there that shouldn't be. And so they have to slice you open to cut it out. Or there's something not functioning the way it's supposed to. And so they have to slice you open to fix it. And maybe that's the better way to think of surgeons. They're not really cutting. They're fixing. They're healing. They're not, they're not slicing. They're repairing. Well, in many ways, that's chapter 6 of Hebrews. And, and in a lot of ways, and Nancy can tell you this, I wrestled last week with kind of wanting to, to do the whole thing at once. Because we've already been told back in chapter 4 that God's Word is a, a surgeon's knife. That cuts down into things you don't know even exist. That cuts down into things you can never see. That cuts into soul and spirit that divides these, our innermost parts. That exposes our innermost parts. And it hurts but it's intended to heal. That's chapter 6 of Hebrews. Because if you think about it, last week was the slicing, was the cutting, was the hurting. You should be more mature than you are. You you should be beyond milk. Your nourishment should be coming from solid food, not just from milk. You're too old in the faith to simply be... Feeding on spiritual milk. You should be eating meat by now. You should be teachers, quite honestly. And yet, you still need people to hold your hand. That's the slicing. That's the cutting. That's the opening. That's the painful part. And then, right on the heels of that comes, now it's time to close them up. Now it's time to to put things right. Now it's time to give them some pain meds. Now it's time to make this thing all better. Because from the end of five through twelve, they've they've been cut open. And now here the writer brings them to to healing, to restoration. (laughs) To the real aim of the surgery. Not just to cut and expose, but to fix what is broken. This is the healing balm. This is the encouragement to press on in the faith. To continue. This is the the encouragement. So Eugene Peterson has a book on the Psalms of Ascent called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's the Christian life. And why do we walk the long obedience in the same direction? Because in part of this passage, we like examples. We like illustrations to follow. We like, sort of models that we can look at. The original audience, of course, is in danger of falling away from the faith, as it were. Uh, they have started well. Uh, they are facing the, the rough seas of life as converted Jewish Christians. They're Jewish by their birth, their ancestry, their genealogy. But they've come to saving faith in Christ and understand uh, Christ as the uh, fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated, which is why, by the way, the book of Hebrews is really just all the Old Testament and Jesus, right? It literally walks through the Pentateuch with Jesus as here. Let me take you uh, to this passage. And here's Jesus as that they're Jewish Christians and they look to Abraham as their father, as their ancestor. That's their background. And quite honestly, they take great pride in that. And so in order to understand this passage, we actually have to take a journey. A journey through 14 chapters of Genesis. Okay, we're not really going to read all 14 chapters of Genesis. If you want, you can go back, I don't know, five, six, seven years. I don't whenever we, I, I preached through Genesis somewhere along the way. It's been a while. It's on the website. You can find it if you have the patience to dig that far. But the writer uses their ancestor as the quintessential illustration of a long obedience in the same direction. And you're talking long. If you look back at, at Abraham, Abraham was 75 years old. And in Genesis 12, God comes to him and calls him from his father's house and, and, and Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, leave. And God basically says to him, here's the deal. You are going to come with me. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a, a place, a land, a territory. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And at this point, Abraham, 75, has no children. And so He follows. His name, Abram, at the time, means father, but Ab is Hebrew for father. And and God promises to make him a great nation. And looking at the fact that he has no children, he follows. And years go by, and God will come and meet with Abram numerous times over Numerous times over the the decades, he promises him descendants like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the shore. And in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, Abram's descendant, his heir is a foreign servant. Ten more years go by. Still no children. And Sarah suggests, you know what, Abram, here's the the catch. Here's the deal. Uh, I think Hagar is really going to be the fulfillment of all this. So why don't you and Hagar solve this problem of us not having a son? But Ishmael is not the son that God promised. He's not the son of the promise. Thirteen more years go by. And God comes to Abraham and He confirms to Abraham this covenant and even gives a sign, circumcision, to Abraham and to his household. Still no son. If if you read through Genesis... There are a couple of places where the writer wanders away from Abram over to Lot. And it's almost as if you get the sense that the writer wants you to feel Abraham's long delay. We hate waiting. We hate the idea that my drive through would take more than 45 seconds. I ordered on the app. It's supposed to be ready to go. No waiting. I'm in, I'm out. Zip, I'm gone. Minute rice is about 30 seconds too long. (laughs) Instant grits isn't fast enough. We hate waiting. At 100, at 99, Abraham has no children. Twenty four years. Parents, if your kids said, I'm going to clean my room, I promise. And it took them twenty four years. Husbands, if you say to your wife, I promise I'm going to fix whatever is broken. And it took you twenty four years I don't even make that promise anymore. I know better than that. I can't. And I'm surely not going to. We accuse God of taking too long. We get impatient. We decide, you know, God, look. I, I, this whole sanctification thing. This whole spiritual growth thing. This whole um, um, you know growing in grace thing. When's that happening? Right? I want you to give me patience and I want you to give it to me now. That's the way we live. That's the way we operate. And then you watch the news and you read surveys about kids growing up and leaving the church and you wring your hands in fear. Jesus is going to lose. The church is going to die. The church is going to get wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, never mind that Jesus said that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell itself can't prevail against it. That's not good enough for us. God, you're not doing what you said you would do. You're taking too long. That's Abraham. That's his whole 24 years of, I'm going to make you a great nation Promise after promise after promise. Until finally, Abraham and Sarah had that son. Abraham was a hundred. Twenty-five years later, the fulfillment of that promise. But we just read Genesis 22. Or a portion of it for our Old Testament reading. The chapter in which... Isaac, now an early teenager, probably 12, 13, 14. God tells Abraham, here's the deal. I'm going to have you take this son, the son of the promise. The one I've been telling you for 25 that I you know, told you for 25 years you would have. I want you to take him to the mountain and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. I'll give you a lot of things. My kids are not on that list. And and Abraham was faithful that that he literally took that very son up on the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice, believing we find out that that if this is the son of the promise, God will raise him from the dead if that's what is necessary. What would make you press on for 25 years? What would make Abraham follow through on that command in Genesis 22? Now, I don't know, 35, 38-ish years or so after receiving that first call to come follow me, leave your pagan household, leave your idolatrous father and come and, and serve me what what does Abraham have that causes him to press on? he has hope I mean, that's sort of the the aim of this passage is that that we have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Abraham has Hope, now here's the thing, you and I, we use hope to really mean sort of wishful thinking about a future outcome, right? I hope Clemson wins tomorrow night, right? I I have no guarantee, I have no certainty, I have no promise, and I have certainly no control over the outcome. It's wishful thinking about a future outcome that's not what hope means in the bible hope is more like patiently waiting for that which is to come to be i mean that's really the essence of hope is that we are we're merely waiting for that which is already though still in the future to come to be in our present Abraham believed the promises of God. And so he pressed on in hope. And you think about it. You you go back and read. I mean, if you're looking for something to do on a rainy Lord's Day, Sabbath day, restful afternoon, go read Genesis 12 to 22. And count the number of times God seems to reiterate the oath. The promise, the covenant to Abraham. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a people. And I'm going to to give you my presence. Those are the things that, that God promises Abraham over and over and over again. And 25 long years later, Abraham finally has that son. Now, I don't know about you, but I, if you go out on even a semi-clear night, you, you don't even really need. You know this, right? You, you you rent a cabin on a mountain in Colorado, and you're you know you're over a mile high. You're up at five, six, seven thousand feet above sea level. And there's no lights around you. It's amazing how many more stars there are in the sky than when you walk out you know, right here in the heart of Athens and look up. But on a semi clear night in downtown Athens, go up and go out and, and look up in the sky and count the stars. I'm pretty sure you can count more than one. That's all Abraham sees. God promised me people, He co- promised a nation. He promised that the nations of the earth would be blessed through my descendants. I have one. And yet he presses, he presses on. That was enough for Abraham to press on in a long obedience. You ever watch kids um like wrestle. You ever watch kids sort of, sort of end up? Usually, it boils down to um, you know a pair of siblings, right? And and one of them is being annoying to the other one. Until the other one finally squashes him, sits on her, you know whatever, pins him to the ground, and says, you know, you will never. Right on my door again. You will never take my toys without asking. You'll never whatever. And the the kid literally. I promise. I promise. And and the bigger kid, you know, whichever kid is doing the holding down, says that's not good enough. They they have these layers. Kids have these layers of of authority of of confidence in your promise. Right? There's a promise. But if the kid said, No, no, I swear! I swear! I swear! Okay, that's better. They'll invoke the pinky promise. Right? I promise. Pinky promise. Like that's a step up from just a plain old promise. You do realize kids understand we lie. Even at five, six years old, they understand this kid is going to lie to me. As soon as I let them up, they're going to do something. My fingers were crossed. My hair was crossed. I didn't mean right? They, they back off the promise like that. We'll say what we have to say in the moment and and as soon as we have some freedom, we're done. We're out. Like we figure out how to God doesn't need all that. Right? God is Himself truth. God is himself truth and, and truth is what it is because it's God's. And, and even Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them by your truth, by the truth. Your word is truth. We, we say God can do anything. That's not exactly true because he can't do things that are contrary to his character. And if he is himself truth, he cannot lie. And it's okay to say that an omnipotent God can't lie. That's okay. And yet God offers Abram Abraham a pinky promise. Now, he doesn't need all that, right? He simply says, and and what he says is guaranteed to be so. It is guaranteed to be true. That's why we say hope is merely waiting for that which is to come to be. Why? Because if God says it, it is as good as done, even if we don't experience it yet in this life. God can't lie. And yet, verses 16 to 18, God offers to Abraham, and we saw this in our Old Testament reading a few minutes ago, a pinky promise. He's been telling Abraham all along, I promise this. Here's my covenant. Here's the agreement. Here's my oath. And and in Genesis 22, it's as if God says, I've promised. Now I'm going to pinky promise. I'm going to add to the thing by which I promised before. You see, when you really, the the history of you go into a courtroom, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. There's a history there of you putting a hand on a Bible. That's because there's a history that the Bible has some authority and you're swearing on that which is greater. When God wanted to swear on something greater, he looks around and there isn't such a thing. There is no thing, no one greater than God himself. And so his promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, which the writer here picks up on, is God says, by myself, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. You want to learn some Hebrew? Hebrew's fascinating. You want to learn Hebrew is really cool, especially if you're a math person. Like Hebrew was sort of like solving equations and things. Um. Hebrew, where, where, where your English Bible does surely bless, that's actually Hebrew going blessingly bless. They use the same word twice to give you that emphasis. Um, and so it's blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And that sounds weird in English, and so they give you the surely, right? And, and God literally looks at Abraham and says, look, I swear, well, by the greatest thing there is, Me, That that was Inigo Montoya, right? I swear on the grave of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. The greatest thing he could, the princess bride, the greatest thing he could think of was his own father's grave. And so in verses 13 and 14, the writer looks back to Genesis 22 and says God swears by himself surely I will bless you and surely I will multiply you that is adding a promise to the promise that is God condescending to Abraham to pinky, to pinky promise God's word must be true there's no Real reason for him to do that if he says I'm going to do this it is sure and certain and it has to be true and there's no reason whatsoever to add to it and yet he does for Abraham's sake and for ours he added to his promise an oath swearing by himself as if to more surely confirm that which is already guaranteed you and I are called to a long obedience in the same direction, just like Abraham, towards the truth of God's promise, the guarantee that what He has said He will do, He will, in fact, do. That what He has said He will do is as good as done. We hope for that which is, despite the fact that our eyes don't yet see it. But there's a huge difference between us well, between the original audience of this letter and us and, and, and Abraham, we have more than a promise. We have more than a pinky promise. We have more than an oath. We have the fulfillment. Abraham was always looking to that descendant in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Jesus. That's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that, that um, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All those promises made to Abraham throughout the Old Testament through, from Genesis 12 to 22 are fulfilled in Jesus. We have more than a promise. We actually have the fulfillment. He was looking ahead to the fulfillment. We are looking back to Christ and the cross. He's the fulfillment of all that God said he would do for Abraham. Abraham anticipated, hoped in, longed for the fulfillment of God's promises. We too are called to hope, to wait for, to to longingly expect that which is God, that which God has already promised he Would do. In fact, that's really the aim of the anchor in verse nineteen. The anchor is our hope. You know, there's something about a boat anchor. Um, you you know, you you drop it over the side. You got anchor, usually length of chain, then rope. You throw it over the side, and it goes all the way to the bottom. And it's, you know, however deep it is, I'm assuming you've got enough rope, right? I mean, assuming you've got enough rope on the end of the thing, it's going to find the bottom. It's always going to go down and find the bottom, and it grabs. And the point is it holds the boat right there. It keeps the boat from, from drifting away, from wandering. You, you can turn off the motor. You can even raise up the motor. You can get out and swim. You can, you can swim to shore. You can you know, depending on, the, you're on the, in the lake, you're on the beach, whatever. And it it holds the boat where it's supposed to be. But what's interesting about anchors is in order for it to do what it's supposed to do, you can't see it. If you can see the anchor, it's not holding anything. If you can see the anchor, it's not holding your boat. There's some parallel there. Where is our hope? Where is that anchor set? Where is... What what sort of rock has it grabbed onto so that it can hold you in place? Well, it's actually in the most holy place. It's actually behind the curtain. It's, it's in the holy of holies, in the true heavenly tabernacle. In other words, if Abraham can believe the promises of God, despite not seeing their fulfillment, how much more should we be able to who live after their fulfillment? And we have this hope. It's anchored there. Well, how did it get there? Who put the anchor in the most holy place? Well, then he uses another seafaring illustration. Jesus is our forerunner. You see, there's this sometimes, sometimes ships have this problem. Um, you're at sea, you're trying to get into the harbor, and the tide is out. And, and the draft of your boat, the, the, the distance between the waterline and the bottom of your boat is too great. right? You're, you're going to hit the sandbar. You're going to hit the thing that sort of makes the harbor a harbor. And so what they had to do was they had to send a small boat, just a small little vessel that skimmed across the top. And they would drag the anchor. They literally put the anchor in this boat. And in this boat, you take the, the anchor into the harbor and you drop the anchor in the harbor. The anchor, not of the boat, of the small boat, but the anchor of the big giant ship that's still outside of the harbor. So the anchor of the ship is in the safe place. The ship can't get there until the tide comes in. So it has to sit out there and wait. And Wait. In the wind, not, not in the harbor where the, where the, the water is smooth, right? And calm. Not in the protection from the wind. It's still out there where there's wind and there's waves and it's rocking and it's, it's bouncing a little. The wind may shift it here and there. And it waits until the tide comes in and it can go into the harbor safely where its anchor already is. Isn't that the Christian life? I mean, this passage says, look, Jesus has already taken your anchor into the most holy place and dropped it and you are secure there. You're just waiting for the tide to come in so that you can join him. What a great picture, a great illustration of our salvation. Jesus is our forerunner. He's in the most holy place. And notice the, the name, look at verse twenty. what does the writer call jesus he doesn 't use christ he doesn 't use messiah he doesn 't use, he uses the earthly name, not the, the the divine title, if you will I think there 's a reason for that because as we as we say in our shorter catechism right Jesus Is fully God, fully man, two distinct natures, and one person forever. Like, Jesus didn't become man, die on the cross, rise again, ascend into heaven, and quit being man. Like, don't ask. I don't know. I just, I don't know. But your humanity, your flesh, dwells in the heavenly places in Christ. I don't know. Don't ask. But the reality is he's he's taken your nature there and that which he has promised to redeem. He certainly will. The reality is your salvation is safe and secure because Jesus has taken your hope into the harbor, dropped anchor. And made you secure until the tide comes in and you can join him there when you struggle when you're battered by the wind and the waves when there's torment and uncertainty when people point and mock and laugh when the world around you tells you you're wasting your time when the pressures of the world around us get too great when the sky gets too dark and things just seem absolutely horrible. You don't look at those. You look at your anchor. Now here's the thing. Your eyes can't see the anchor. If it could, it wouldn't do you any good. We don't see with our eyes. This is what Hebrews 11 tells us. We see by faith. We hold on to Christ by faith. In fact, This meal is perfect for this passage because it's a meal, dare I? It's the confirmation of the covenant. It's the added pinky promise. It's the meal that tangibly encourages us in our faith. The anchor of Christian hope is solidly holding in the very throne room of heaven because Christ, our forerunner, has carried it there and dropped it. So we have a sure and certain hope of salvation. But let me warn you. Sometimes our eyes deceive us. Uh, Years ago, and I'm going to close with this last illustration. Um, Years ago, Nancy and the kids and I met my parents And my sister-in-law and her two girls, my brother was on call, so he couldn't come. Spring break week, Fripp Island, South Carolina. My dad still had his boat at the time. So we, one afternoon, one morning, whatever, put the boat in, and I took Nancy and Patty and all the kids. My parents weren't interested. Out in the boat, we wandered around back up in the river, back up in the creeks, Wandered over to this cool beach where you can get out and find some cool shells and, and all kinds of things. Throw the anchor over. I pulled up actually to the, to the sand and kind of dumped everybody out and then kind of backed up. Dropped anchor. Made sure the boat was secure. Hopped out. Kind of swam in. You wander around the beach for a little while. Um, did we take Jasper? We should have taken Jasper. We um, come back to the boat and, and the boats moved. moved. The boat's not where it was supposed to be. Like all of a sudden, like it's way out there. Like what happened? Until it dawned on me. The boat's exactly where I left it. The boat didn't move. The anchor didn't fail. The shoreline came in. The tide was coming up. My eyes told me something's wrong with the boat. My anchor has failed. Our faith reminds us that's not possible. We use the eyes of our heart. We use our faith to inform our eyes, not the other way around. Don't watch the news, don't watch the people, don't hear what your people are saying about you. Don't hear people making fun of you. Don't hear the, the surveys that say that you look to Christ. Because it's only in Him that our salvation is safe and secure. You may have the sense that He's failing you. Your sense is wrong. Would you pray with me? Father in Heaven, uh, we thank You for the sure and certain promise of salvation, of deliverance by grace through faith in Christ. For the sure and certain hope that our anchor holds within the veil uh, because you have confirmed for us your oath, your covenant, your blood and they support us in the overwhelming flood of life. Father, may it be that you grant our hearts <laughs> grant us the the grace of faith to see that our anchor holds secure even when the eyes of our bodies tell us that something's wrong. Would you encourage us in this long obedience in the same direction? For the honor and glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.